Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In spring of 1874, Robert Dale Owen, a former congressman from Indiana largely responsible for the law that established the Smithsonian Institution, met a ghost, took a clipping of her hair, and even touched her. The ghost's name was Katie King, and she entered the Philadelphia apartment where Owen first encountered her by emerging from a tall cabinet. The medium Jenny Holmes had channeled her into being, materializing her in the cabinet, and the 72-year-old Owen was deeply impressed with her. She had the same name as a spirit conjured by the medium Florence Cook in England who had been investigated by the renowned scientist and vacuum tube pioneer. William Crooks, suggesting that she had managed to appear on two different continents to two different mediums. Owen observed that, based on photographs of the English Katie King, the two spirits going by the same name looked nothing alike. But he wondered if they still might be the same being, with the face and features altered by the medium's own influence on the ectoplasmic material forming her on each side of the Atlantic. Perhaps he should have been more suspicious and less inclined to make excuses for King because later that year, a 23-year-old widow named Eliza White claimed to have been employed by Jenny and Nelson Holmes to impersonate the spirit of Katie King, sneaking into their cabinet through a false back door. In a mock seance, she demonstrated how the trick was done, except that the 23-year-old widow was actually 35 and her dead husband was alive and well. In fact, an investigation by the illustrious Henry Steele Alcott revealed that Mrs. White had been offered a thousand dollars by the Young Men's Christian Association, now known as the YMCA, to claim to be Katie King, and she had used that offer to blackmail the medium Jenny Holmes and her husband. The Holmeses had caused a scandal for America's spiritualists, and the Congressman Owen, a prominent supporter of the cause, had been publicly disgraced. It seemed that spiritualism was on the ropes again and headed for the dustbin of history. That is, until a certain occult pioneer, the globe-trotting mystic Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, stepped in to save the day. As it turns out, a secret occult brotherhood in Egypt had been watching these events unfold, and they sent their disciple Blavatsky to intervene. Blavatsky had a familiar spirit, a long-dead pirate who was going by the name John King, and John King was none other than the father of the materialized spirit Katie King. John King had made appearances at seances around the world, including the Holmes's cabinet, and had not been proved fraudulent. Along with Blavatsky, he would work on behalf of the secret Brotherhood of Luxor to reveal the truth behind this spiritualist scandal, which was far more mysterious than the impersonator Eliza White could ever explain. Did you guys follow all that? Yeah. There's a lot going on here. What's a vacuum cleaner pioneer? <laughs> vacuum tube. Yeah, the tube. Oh. So the vac oh. vacuum tubes are actually in the old television sets. It's a, so it doesn't have anything to do with vacuum cleaners. It's about electricity. I don't think it has anything to do with vacuum cleaners, no. Oh, okay. Don't quote me on that, though. Someone will. Uh, but that is not the point. <laughs> 
so just to, to get our, our hands around this before we dive in, because we got a whole lot to unpack here. This is a tangled, tangled web here. What a web we weave. How we does have, that go? We have, we have two spirits. We'll start there. Two spirits, Katie King, who's appearing to two different mediums, and Katie King has a father who is John King, who is a dead pirate. And John King, <laughs> the dead pirate, is also a familiar spirit of Helena Blavatsky. Oh. Yeah. So, like, so, they're, like, friends. She's friends with John King, the dead. She's alive okay. at this point. Uh, not alive anymore. But at the time, alive. Uh-huh. Sorry. <laughs> I said it backwards, I guess. Yeah. I waited too long. So John King is her familiar spirit, but John King is also the father of Katie King, who's coming out of cabinets. But Eliza White, who is alive at this time, is claiming to be Katie King, but Eliza White is full of lies. Okay, hmm. well, real <laughs> Eliza the way to spool flies. Um, Blavatsky, what is for her a, a like spirit familiar? What exactly in a short? Well, she, it's not spirit familiar, I guess, in the way that like a witch has a spirit familiar. That's what I'm asking. It's an actual spirit who does her bidding. Okay. Um, but, but that's it. we're gonna have to actually unpack does that her because bidding? Uh, yeah, okay. but not yeah. under, but not with his will in mind. Mm, it's a complicated story. John okay. King um, may or may not be three different beings, and we have to figure out what all three of them are. Yeah, this, is, this is a crazy complicated story. So you guys are really going to have to help uh, our listeners follow along as I tell this insanely ridiculous and may complicated have to story. May to, like, draw a map. It's possible, yeah. We may a need relationship to... chart. <laughs> yeah, basically. All right, my name is Rob C. Thompson, Doctor of the Occult. I am joined today, as usual, by our grand master, Olivia Literal. I'm here. Oh, yeah, and I'm the Supreme Hierophant. I forgot to, forgot to toss that in there. Next to her. Uh, yeah, I know. Good job. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Uh, is Savannah Verrett, who is our sister of the 84th degree in our secret order. Ahoy, mateys. Nice. I'm ready. Wow. Well, she's ready to go to sea here with us. Uh, and next to her, our brother, uh, Knight of the Dangling Serpent. Thank you. Well, I mean, the brother is assumed. Well, yeah. <laughs> if there's a dangling serpent involved, it's a brother. Uh, and that is the voice of Jacob Wheatley you are hearing. Uh, and one of our uh, neophytes working her way up through the ranks here, we have Lucy Bond. Hello. Hello. Welcome. We are the alchemical actors, and this is Occult Confessions. We, We, the members members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I want to welcome our listeners to our second year. Here it is. First episode, second year. We're back and better than ever. Bump, bump. Oh, I like when you... I decided to back you up this time. You can come to the circle all the time. Uh, So this is the first episode in our series on Helena Blavatsky. Uh, Oddly, we're going to not talk about Helena Blavatsky a lot today because we have so much else to unpack to figure out who this dead pirate is who's talking to everybody and messing around in their business. Um, But I do want... uh, I've been fiddling with this all weekend. I sent it out to the alchemical actors. Uh, Since this is our first episode of year two, I want to state our core values for our listeners so they know exactly what we're all about. Is that all right with with the alchemical actors? Yeah, because I don't even know. All right. (laughs) right. I'm going to update you. Tell me my values, please. All right. Value number one. Can I get an echo? Value number one. Nice. Research. Research. In the wide world of occult history, if you think you know what's going on and what you've got, 
Oh, and that you've got, the one absolutely, is there new? I'm still getting used to these. And that you've got, the one absolutely correct perspective on the events in question, then you haven't finished your research. Return to the archive until you have no idea what's going on, then you've got the right idea. Yes, uh, I like it. Right <laughs> there. Value number two. Value number two. Ritual. Ritual. And we defined it uh, in the following way. Robes, daggers, Atlantis. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I really that's, like that last That's all we one. have to say about ritual. Yeah. <laughs> Value <laughs> number three. Value number three. Reenactment. Reenactment. Re all right, you'll, uh, the new listeners will find that we, we do these reenactments fairly regularly. Regular listeners uh, know what this is all about. We have got two varieties of reenactment that I've been able to identify. Mm -hmm. The first I'm calling the monologic citation. This is fairly serious. Word. You like that? Yeah? Okay. I don't know Citation, what it means, no, but always okay. Serious. <laughs> <laughs> the second is mythological theater. Oh. That is not so serious. That's like when we, you know, goof around with the Greeks and stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Goofing with <laughs> the Greeks. <laughs> right. Uh, and this is how I define the reenactment. Both of these are essential to discovering the truth of the supernatural, which, from our perspective, is equal parts silly and serious. Nice. So we need a little of both. Love it. Finally, and this is for you, Savannah, Reagan. <laughs> Reagan! Oh my god! He broke Tecumseh's curse, and whether or not we agree with his politics, we've got to give credit where credit is due. Good job, Reagan. Yeah, Thank you for do. breaking Tecumseh's curse. What? Tecumseh, you, you got to listen back, man, neophyte. It's how I accidentally became a Republican. <laughs> it happens. It just slips sometimes <laughs> right into it. All right. Uh, Republican. Uh, Call Confessions is a commercial-free podcast, so we ask you to bear with us as we do a, a couple of plugs here before we get into our story proper. First, we want to ask you to go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you have not yet to join our joyful fam family of subscribers. Second, uh, if you are enjoying the podcast, so that would mean you've listened to more than just the first two minutes here. I can't relate. Yeah. Uh, then uh, we ask you to get on and write a review for us. Uh, and we do like to read our reviews out during our Order of Confessors. Uh, and finally, uh, if you've been listening and enjoying, please, please, please tell a friend um, yeah. in any way that you communicate with your friends. Rope all your friends into the occult with you. Right. <laughs> Let them enjoy our collective insanity. It's more fun together, you know? It is, yeah, it is. Suffer That's along. why we're all here together <laughs> doing this podcast. Okay, um, so uh, one last note. Uh, this is a new year, so I'm changing things up a little bit. I have moved our order of confessors where I talk about the messages we've received and the various different things that have, have come to us through the interwebs to the end of the episode. We're going to start doing that, uh, and that's not because I don't think it's important. I think it's wildly important, and I, I've been rushing through them because, you know, we don't want to talk too long at the top of the episode without getting to the story, mm. as I've just done. Uh, <laughs> yes, so very self-aware. We're going to drop that down to the, the bottom of the episode so that we can spend more time talking about uh, what our listeners have to say about, about you. the episodes. Spend more time talking about you guys. Yes, yeah. Who, them or them. me? Oh, yeah, the listeners. Are you listening? We talk about you enough. Yeah. <laughs> this whole thing is talking about you. <laughs> what more do you want hey, from Come us? on, give them a chance. Sick man. <laughs> oh, boy. That got a little violent, I think. Sorry, we just started we went attacking. Went off the rails. I didn't mean sick in a bad way. All right, let's, let's get to the, the work of occult confessing, shall we, Olivia? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. There's a lot of backstory, as we're talking about, to travel through before we can land back with Jenny and Nelson Holmes and Robert Dale Owen, so bear with us. 
forget all about Jenny and Nelson Holmes, the mediums. Forget all about the Smithsonian Institution and the 72-year-old Robert Dale Owen. And let's, uh, let's follow Helena Blavatsky as she makes her way to America and the center of the spiritualist scandal. Ooh, scandal. Right? Blavatsky first became involved with American spirit materializations at the Eddie Seances in Chittenden, Vermont. And this is something we brought up actually last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Part of my goal this year is to go back to some of the stuff we did last year and, and sort of left unfinished and, you know, explore those stories and, and sort of find more details in them. Uh, so that's this season. Blavatsky sort of was left unfinished in our Chevalier series, <laughs> right? <laughs> So let's get back to her. So she's at these seances, the Eddy Brothers seances. There's two brothers, William and Horatio Eddy, that held seances in a specially constructed room on their homestead in the mountains of Vermont. How about that, right? William got the boring name there. Horatio. <laughs> like, Good old Horatio. William and Horatio? But William is actually the more interesting of the mediums, in my oh. opinion. Oh. Yeah. They built it specifically to hold seances Yes, in it? yeah, because Ooh. so many people were coming to see the seances they were giving oh. that they needed to create a special space Because okay, I feel to, like that also to could work them. towards it being fake. Ah, mm. hold that thought. <laughs> the 1850s saw the birth of mediumship as a widespread phenomenon. So let's just get some, some backstory out of the way. It began in America and worked its way over to the U.K., France also, and pretty much across the globe. Russia, everybody starts doing the medium thing. Millions of Americans participated in seances and communicated through entranced mediums with disembodied tapping sounds, which were supposed to be produced by visitors from beyond the grave. This is mostly what your seance experience is like in the 1850s and 1860s. Now, here's where things get weird, and here's where we get interested, or I get interested. (laughs) By the 1870s, the third... If it isn't weird enough, right? Uh, the third... What? That sounds normal to us. Oh, it sounds normal. All right. We're fine. You guys are, yeah, to- desensitized to tapping sounds coming from beyond the grave. Yeah, it happens every night. Yeah. <laughs> they lull you to sleep. <laughs> that's that's, that's like how it plays. <laughs> Basically, I don't need the machine ASMR. anymore. Ghost ASMR. Oh, boy. By the 1870s, so now one more decade, the third decade of America's obsession with psychic mediums, the movement that they led, spiritualism, had lost some of its novelty, as we're all describing here. (laughs) People were just like, okay, fine, I got the taps. Uh, And perhaps as a consequence, a new crop of increasingly eccentric mediums had begun to vie for the public's attention. Materializing mediums like William Eddy who was a lot like Jenny and Nelson Holmes, who popped Katie King out of their cabinet, were perhaps the most <laughs> sensational of the bunch. What? Do you didn't like that visual <laughs> 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 uh, So they produced these full spectral bodies of the dead. These spirits sang, they danced, they did magic tricks, and oh. they gave neat speeches. Oh. Did they take magic tricks? We talked about this last year, and I always feel bad for the spirits, because it's like, why are you just going to make them dance? Like, <laughs> they're like those monkeys. Like, yeah, that, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, come on. They're like, I never knew magic prob- tricks in real life. Why so how do I, I know them now? <laughs> this is what makes them so goofy, friends, uh, and, and why we're like, this can't be real. Mm. Uh, but I promise you, minds will be blown as we burrow into these materialized spirits. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, so they allowed select seance participants to touch them and to dance with them. Consent. Uh, and they were subject, yeah, with consent. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and they were subject to intense debate, international scandal, and condescending doubt, uh, and also passionate belief. So some people really believed in them. Some people, like Savannah, are like, mm, I don't know. Wow, that was a great sentence. What? Just well written. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. 
So William Eddy performed the cabinet seances, and Horatio performed what were called dark seances. Let's just get those out of the way. They're also fun, uh, but we're not going to focus on them. So the dark seances took place in the dark, (laughs) and the audience experienced a host of spectral sounds as they sat in a circle, aiding Horatio's contact with the spirit. So you sit around a circle, hold hands, and then you hear all these sounds. That's like one of those Disney rides where they have like the wind blowing to make you feel like you're there. What's that called? That's or if you just like. listen to this podcast in the dark. Weird. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> wow. We do dark seances every day. Every day. Uh, well, at least <laughs> twice a month. So, <laughs> the cabinet seance, by contrast, William got into a closet that was covered with a curtain and went into a trance. The audience sat on two benches facing his stage platform, and behind the platform stood this cabinet. So there's, there's a cabinet, there's a stage... There's two benches. That's basically the room. Mm-hmm. Okay. We dim the lamps on the theory that bright light burns away the very fragile ectoplasmic matter of the spirits. Weird. Makes sense, though, I guess. <laughs> we, we don't just see them, like, hanging around on the stage. That's why. Oh. Because mm-hmm. stage Otherwise lights are protecting us. Them. Right. There'd be ghosts everywhere. <laughs> so, thank goodness for the light. And that's why you need to be afraid of the dark. Manifestations can only occur in red light if you have to use a light because it's uh, you know lowest on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. The first row of spectators join hands, and a violinist plays a solo. Oh, this is is it like one of those like horror movie ones where it's like, like actually pretty? No, I think it's very it's relaxing. Okay. It's meant to relax us into the moment. Yeah, not to jar us so that we're all you want to put you in the mood. white knuckled on our benches. Yeah. What if it's like a fiddle? Well, it could be, it could be a fiddle. We are in the mountains. Oh, I like a fiddle. Finally, in the words of the reporter and spiritualist investigator Henry Steele Alcott, the curtain stirred, was pushed aside, and a form stepped out and faced the audience. <gasps> a visitor from beyond the grave. <gasps> Alcott had initially been sent to investigate these seances by the paper The New York Sun, but another paper, The Daily Graphic, was so interested in his report that they sent him back for a longer stage of about several months in order to conduct a thorough investigation. Colonel Alcott mailed off a series of reports which he eventually compiled into his nearly 500-page book, People from the Other World. That's a lot of It feels like, but 19th century pages are shorter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? Or... Paper, I don't, my... <laughs> Paper was cheaper, yeah. Okay. Paper was cheaper back then. Uh, he had been a signals officer, as I'm pointing out, during the Civil War, raising to the rank of colonel. That's why I called him Colonel Alcott, and served on the inquest into Abraham Lincoln's assassination. So a serious guy. Oh. Yeah. He had a long history of interest in spiritualism and a respected career as an investigator. And that is what landed him this gig, investigating the Eddie seances. He reported seeing hundreds of spirits emerge from the Eddie's cabinet, including spirits who knew either the Eddie's or their guests when they had been alive. They came in all shapes and sizes, both genders, uh, both at the time there was only two genders, and a variety of nationalities. But the most frequent visitors were Native American spirits, especially a teenage girl named Honto. Part of the motive for producing all these different spirits in different shapes and sizes and speaking different languages was, can you guess? To evoke more belief in it. Why? Because if it was like white people who were there <laughs> coming out of this closet, they're like, ah, that was just Phil. He came in with us. And then they're like, what? Not this Native American girl. 
The more spirits you can produce, yes, the more believable it is. I figured them out. <laughs> and in part, because remember, the medium goes behind a curtain and we don't see him again. Yeah. We just see spirits pop out. Mm -hmm. We want to know that it's not just William in disguise. They're not all round <laughs> white men with beards. He's beard. dressed up as a Native American girl. <laughs> right. Oh my. Right, because he couldn't be a persuasive Native American teenage girl. I hope not. He yeah. was this round, white, bearded guy. Mm. I take a lot of corsets. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> it took him a while. That's why the curtain was moving, was because he was trying to get into it. Yeah, you couldn't think of a more different spirit than Honto from the physical body of, of William. So the other native spirits he produced include, included Electa, Daybreak, Bright Star, White Feather, Swift Cloud, a spirit called Black Swan's Mother, <laughs> and the tall warrior Santum. So he produced a lot of Native American spirits. On one dramatic evening, several of these spirits appeared outside of a cave by the moonlight on the Eddie family property, theoretically proving that the seance parlor had not been rigged to produce the spirits. Savannah? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of course, there are alternate explanations for appearing through a cave, right? Yeah. The cave been... was their green room. Huh. <laughs> yeah, they could just be hanging out in the cave. Wouldn't it have been more convincing for the... Like, I get that Native American is obviously very different than white male, but wouldn't it have been even more convincing for him to get the spirit of someone that's not, like, from... Like, Native American, you could still find it in the U.S. You know what I mean? If he had he produced, actually did. Like, he produced Russians and Germans. Oh, really? When Blavatsky came, he started producing Russians. Hmm. Right? Interesting. Yeah. Because hmm. oh, okay. she's Russian. Did we'll, she we'll bring get there. them? And we'll get there. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it seems a little... We're going to put pins oops, in all this, oops. yeah, because we got we to gotta, <laughs> right. go there. Um, okay, so to Olivia's question here, why are there so many American Indian spirits at these seances? Why not? I mean, there are Germans and Russians, but it's a lot of Native American mm -hmm. spirits. Uh, this is a question I've spent some time on as a scholar. Uh, so I'll share my theories briefly, because scholarship I know is boring, and podcasts <laughs> are not supposed to be. Uh, so... <laughs> Articles by Werner Sollers and Bridget Bennett point out that spiritualists looked to Native Americans as uniquely spiritual and authentic. They were closer to nature, and so they satisfied a kind of romantic ideal about the connection between the transcendent, the spiritual, and the natural. Mm -hmm. Right? It's the romantic period, and we go, you know, Emerson just like wanders through the trees to find God. So Native Americans are perfect, right? They are close to nature, so they bring this spirit and nature into focus. Thoreau, you know, hanging out at Walden, all that stuff. Natural also equates to a kind of freedom from modern mechanisms. This is an argument that I make um, that might be used uh, to trick an audience. So Philip J. DeLorean, in his book Playing Indian, argues that uh, according to the noble, savage conception of Native people, they were simple and childlike. This sounds familiar, yeah. I mean, we don't know 19th century native spirit stereotypes very well these days, but this is how we thought of them. They were noble, but they were also very simple. Mm -hmm. And when you think about it that way, they're honest, but they're also incapable of contrivance, right? If you're simple, then you can't fool people. Mm -hmm. Like a child right. can't lie very well. They lie, but they're not good at it. Same idea. The Native American simplicity makes Native American more persuasive. Mm. It's also important that native spirits held the most power in these seances. Native people were, according to a certain cultural trope, uh, uh, considered more sensual than white colonizers. That makes sense. More physical, mm -hmm. more tactile. They went barefoot and naked in all sorts of climates, so they literally were more tactile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Colonizers achieved first contact 
with Native people. That's what we called it, first contact. So even though all the language we use about Native Americans is about physical skin-to-skin -skin contact. At the seances, Hanto displayed her stockings, <gasps> let her hair hang loose, which is actually, oh, yeah, in yeah. the Victorian period, you don't do that. Mm. And let a female member of the seance party, Mrs. Cleveland, touch her chest oh. and feel her beating heart. Wait, Mrs. Cleveland was there at every one? Just that time. Well, she, oh. was, she was frequently there, but Mrs. Cleveland, they were like, just pulled her out of the audience. They were like, hey, you want to touch me? Oh, she's like yeah. I've been coming every single week for this. Cleveland was waiting for the Katie cleavage. King, by contrast, would let men touch her, but Hanto, you know, she would only oh. let Mrs. Cleveland touch her. Well, how did that go over? Katie King letting. Oh, we're getting people... there. Oh, we're getting there. Okay. Hmm. That's how that's what got Robert Dale Owen and, and Hot Water. But hey, we're getting there. <laughs> we're getting there. Let's let's stick with Hanto for a while. Uh, there's another contradictory side to our Indian spirits, though. Beginning in the 1870s, a new stereotype emerged of the varmint redskin hungry to stab unsuspecting settlers in the night as they slept by their campfires. So this Jesus. is the flip side. <laughs> yeah. We have the noble savage and the varmint redskin. Both of them are stereotypes and horrible. Yeah. Uh, but one of them is far more benign than the other. It's very like animalistic thinking yeah. of them. Yeah. Well, with the nature association. Yeah. And the simplicity, all these things. Yeah, right on. George Miller Beard a chemist who visited the Eddy homestead and wrote an article for the Daily Graphic against Alcott, arguing that the materialized spirits were all frauds, linked William Eddy, the uh, medium, to the uh, American Indians. Both were close to nature, and according to Beard, this closeness didn't render them authentic and spiritual, as in the standard spiritualist and romantic version of the American Indian, but rather stupid and drunk. If Darwin wishes to find the intermediate link, he should visit Chittenden. In the presence of these glorious mountains, man is dwarfed. Here, as in Switzerland, the White Mountains and the Adirondacks, nature and humanity are inversely proportional. In this land of marble and mountains, the natives are drunk with excess of beauty and live in a moral state somewhat analogous to chronic alcoholism. So what did he mean by that? Exactly? So, so basically, it's like a, it's a kind of classism. He's saying... Um, if you the elites are based in cities, right? We still have this stereotype. The elites mm -hmm. are in cities, and the sort of like bumpkins who are apt to conduct these kinds of absurd, fake, fraudulent spirit seances are out in the woods in in their trailers. Do you see? Yeah. Or in the mountains. Mm -hmm. In their mountain in their trailers. trailers. <laughs> in their trailers. Yeah. <laughs> so he's basically calling the Eddies poor white trash. Oh, <laughs> thank you yeah. for there you go. translating that. <laughs> yeah. He said uh, uh, William Eddy had to be impersonating the native girl, that the light in the room was good enough to tell otherwise, and that the Eddy's skin was dark enough to qualify them as the actor for Honto. Wait, so he what? thought that a man was playing as this teenage Indian girl? At least that his view of her wasn't clear enough to oh, tell otherwise. Uh, Mrs. Cleveland touch her? Yeah, Mrs. Cleveland got way close. Mm. She also danced with her. We'll get there. Mm. Helena Blavatsky, getting back to our Russian mystic, first made a name for herself by responding to Beard in the newspaper. Having read Alcott's reports in the Daily Graphic, she traveled to Chittenden to meet Alcott and to watch these paranormal proceedings of spirits popping out of cabinets. She and Alcott became fast friends, and after Beard's criticism surfaced, she wrote to the newspaper saying he had only published such an incendiary bunch of lies in order to attract interest to himself in his new business selling a kind of electrotherapy, which is true. Oh. 
Oh. Yeah. I mean, not the. I mean, I don't know if he was doing it just to do that, but he yeah. had started this electrotherapy business. Incidentally, Emma Harding Britton from our first series also was in the business of electrotherapy. Hmm. Fun right? fact. Well, electricity at the time was so like not. new and wild. Like, what can we do with it? Yeah, we didn't know what it was or how it worked. So we, yeah, we were coming up with all kinds of Let's stuff. Electrocute everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Healthy. What? She. Well, uh, what? I was gonna say it's still kind of used to some degree today. Yeah. yeah like <clears throat> Conversion <Well>. therapy. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Fun wow. fact. Can I add in one little note? Yeah. Uh, DC was the first. Uh, territory of the U.S. to ban uh, conversion therapy practices on LGBT adults. Oh, just And adults. Maryland was the 11th to do it for children. Wow. Yeah. How huh. about that? Yep. That's Anyways. Good. Nice job, <laughs> Mid-Atlantic region. Yep. I feel a little bit better about what's happening now. <laughs> in the 19th century or yes. in life? <laughs> Generally. Yep. All of the above. <laughs> So, Blavatsky offered $500 to Beard if he could prove that the Eddie seances were a hoax. Damn, that's, that's a, a lot, lot of money. money. Yeah. Right, and especially she wasn't like wildly wealthy right now, so she I mean, was pretty sure that he couldn't prove it. For his part, Alcott believed Beard's theory was ridiculous. He had seen Hanto well enough to know that it wasn't simply William in disguise. So here we are at length. Confederacy, disproven. Personation, discredited. Spontaneous generation of the apparitions, Impossible. Mind reading by the medium, followed by his creation of the shades of our deceased friends? Absurd. Result? A possibility that, by some occult control over now unknown forces of nature, beings, other than those in the body, can manifest their presence to sight, touch, and hearing. If beings, what beings? Those they purport to be, or the simulacra of such, formed and fashioned by tricky creatures, who are suffered to trifle with the sacredest feelings of our hearts. I feel like him saying that does add to it being real. Like, I know I was saying earlier, like, oh, they could fake it, but like, I feel like it's more reasonable for them to get an actor than it is for them to dress up. That's yeah. always been my theory, is yeah. that there are other people involved who are somehow playing the role. Like the cave, mm -hmm. that works really well, as Jacob said, mm -hmm. the green room. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, they're all there's hanging out in the cave. If they and... specially built it, there's probably like a secret passage or something they can crawl if under to get there. it's on the other there. side of the stage, too, and the yeah. lights are dim, you're not going to see Where does back. he go when he's in the thing? He just sits there. Okay. In the and he, does in he trance. stay behind? Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, he's in trance the whole time, channeling the forces necessary to keep the ectoplasm together for okay, these spirits. but you can see him? You can't, because he's oh, behind the curtain. Okay. Well, why didn't they have someone watching him? Can't, because that'll break his concentration. Also, oh it's this God. super cramped, hot little room that they built a window on, but we'll get to the window in a second. So, uh, Alcott was not willing to state positively that these phenomena were spirits of the dead, only that he could not deny the possibility. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's more like how I feel, though, about know, a lot of paranormal stuff. I'm like, well, these explanations are not okay, but that doesn't mean that I understand what's happening. Yeah, just mm -hmm. make a decision. He brought this same <laughs> open-mindedness. <laughs> Go all in. I, I don't mean it like that, but... It's fine. He was an open-minded investigator, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and he brought this same attitude to the Katie King fiasco in Philadelphia, when he was called on to resolve the conflict created by Eliza White's damning revelation that she had been impersonating the so-called materializing spirit. On the 20th of April, 1874, 
the former statesman and spiritualism enthusiast Robert Dale Owen sat down with a trance medium, Mrs. Hardy, in Boston, and her spirits communicated to him that he would, in his lifetime, see specters moving and talking with him. All right, so now we're back. Back to Robert Dale Owen. Okay. We went to the Eddie seances. We saw what was going on there. This is the next thing that's going to happen. How are they related to each other? So Alcott's going to end up investigating both. Oh, it's both of them he And Blavatsky's going to end up at both. Okay. And these are the two sort of like biggest materialization seances happening in the United States mm -hmm. at this time period. Before you leave the earth, you shall see specters, as you call them, walking about, and they will take you by the hand and converse with you. Me also you shall behold in the form. You shall witness far more wonderful things than you have ever yet seen. Shortly after this experience, a physician who had been working with Jenny and Nelson Holmes, Dr. Henry T. Child, wrote to Robert Dale Owen asking him to come down to Philadelphia and experience the spirit of Katie King at a seance given by the husband and wife mediums, Jenny and Nelson Holmes. So, weird coincidence. He goes to a seance and they're like, you're going to see spirits walking around. Now I'm going to be one of them, says this unnamed spirit so far, but it's going to be John King, the, spir the pirate, this pirate, <laughs> the pirate king of the spirit realms. Uh, so he hears John King talking to him, doesn't know that it's him yet, and then shortly afterwards he gets a letter like, come meet these spirits that are popping out of cabinets. Okay, that's pretty wild. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dr. Child was witness to the first materializations produced by the Holmeses. I don't like Dr. Child at all. It is a little weird. <laughs> I was going to say something, but... It's Doogie Howser. Katie King had a... Anyone? Doogie Howser? No. no? Patrick Harris. Right, back in the day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Katie King had appeared to him and also her father, John King. So both the spirits have popped out and showed themselves to Dr. Child. They made arrangements with the doctor to materialize in his office so that they could share their life stories with him to record and distribute in a pamphlet to the American public. Okay, okay, okay. Why would they do that? All right, so... Pamphlets were big back then. Yes, but... <laughs> but they're not even alive! Right, so this is... For, this for me is one of the weirdest parts of the story. It's all very weird, but... After they start materializing and the doctor comes and sees them, they say to, they single him out and they're like, we're going to just pay you visits at your office. <laughs> like totally outside of this whole seance thing. Like no mediums or anything. We're just going to swing by occasionally. And if you could just write down our stories and share them, that would be it's so a cool. In a, well, everything's in a pamphlet. Yes, in a pamphlet. <laughs> Imagine it being in like a doctor's office. Well, they didn't want to. F it is, yes. Yeah, like, <laughs> Doctor Child's office. They're reading them where they're like waiting to go back yeah. to the room. Doctor Child coming through magazines. Wrote oh. these pamphlets to put in his office. I'm convinced. <laughs> is there a John King here? John King dead? <laughs> dead John King? Any any dead John Kings here? He was here? only a doctor for like ghosts. Yes. Yeah. Dead John. The doctor will see you now. That's so weird. Well, how long did? What maybe you're gonna say, but how long did this go on? How oh, long? A little while, a little while. Were like, his patients like, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I was in line first. <laughs> um, I'm sure they set aside a time. Uh, they made an appointment. They took his insurance, but not mine. <laughs> they called his secretary. <laughs> okay, so this now. That, now let's get to the story. I know you all want to know what is this story that yeah. John King told. This is crazy already. Yeah. So. Here we go. John King claimed to be, this is only going to get weirder, the pirate Henry Morgan, <laughs> who was a real guy, a real historical pirate. 
And the story he told of his time on the Earth plane more or less paralleled what we know of Morgan's career. We have to bear in mind, Henry Morgan is a pirate like 20 years after Shakespeare dies. So history is not great. Like the recording of things that happen isn't swell, let alone things pirates do. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Why is his name different? Yeah, I don't know. There's no explanation <laughs> for that Wait, in any of why? the literature. What he just when he becomes a spirit, his name changes from Henry Morgan to John King. He, I know he why, because he wants to talk to Henry Child. So he's like, we can't both be named Henry. <laughs> so he names right, himself John. Could be a major faux pas. So. <laughs> he could uh. just called him Doctor Child. I have solved the occult. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are some explanations. Lucy, that we, we'll get to. We'll get to. Okay. okay. But we have to get more of the story before we can really I'm understand sorry. it. Okay. That's good. It's a good question. It's a very good question. It might be the most important one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. In this whole episode. Why did he change his name? Okay. So, he said that he had been born in Wales on the 17th of March, 1636, the second of nine children. I don't think we know the historical Henry Morgan's actual birth date, but it's close enough. They're in the rough, rough same time period. Like, we don't know Frederick Douglass's birth date. He was born in the 19th century. I mean, he was well, born a slave. But, like, there's a lot of people who we don't know their actual mm -hmm. spot-on birthday. Mm -hmm. So he's in the right neighborhood. At 16, he said, he ran away on a ship bound for Barbados, working as an indentured servant for three years on a plantation. He had mediumistic abilities, this guy... Henry Morgan, the pirate, mm -hmm. that were brought out by being at sea. So now this is not part of the official biography that we know of Henry Morgan. But the rest of it's pretty good. Cool. Uh, but he did not believe in this power during his lifetime. He only came to understand that he was a psychic in retrospect after he had passed to the spirit side of life and changed from Henry Morgan to John King. Mm -hmm. Back huh. to the pirate now. So he joined a crew of buccaneers in Jamaica and proceeded to plunder and pillage as pirates do. I have no apologies to offer for the life of crime, plunder, bloodshed, and piracy which I led. I will say that years of intense suffering in this life have not yet enabled me to wipe out all the sorrow which was so justly mine. I dream of the heaven which is to be mine when all this turmoil and strife is over. Yeah, pirates don't need to apologize. The sea is their mistress. They, they, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, that's the reason. They're, because the sea is their mistress, they, they don't apologize. They themselves. Yeah. yeah, they only answer to their mistress. <laughs> the sea. When the wave just slaps them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, she slaps them around when so they've you're been... going this way now. <laughs> <laughs> There's not even enough pirate jokes in this. Well, there, here you are, man. What's well, stopping what's you? What's a pirate's favorite letter, Rob? You hurt Jacob. You hurt him in his soul. <sighs> I swear. If Look, he just deflated a little. I don't know. He's what a is foot it, shorter. Rob? <laughs> What's a is it P? Why would it be P? There's Probably. literally two options that you get to pick from, and I say the opposite one is the punchline. I think they drink a lot of rum. Rob, like your kid, Captain is gonna... Henry Morgan, <laughs> Captain Morgan. <laughs> I think I had a very legitimate letter. Jacob, what's up? No, I'm not answering this. <laughs> well, somebody just give her the letter. Arr. There you go. No, it's C. C, and they're on the seawater. Sea Returning to the British Isles, he married Katie Lambert and had a child, Katie, by her on the 12th of May, 1660. I feel like I've seen that in other history, too, where, like, they, they named their daughters after the moms. Yeah. Like, they did that with Theodosia. 
Hamilton uh-huh. or uh, Burr's Aaron Burr's daughter. I will say my wife's name is Katie, and uh, she was always been a little upset that she's not like Catherine or something. But here, these people are just are Katie, and so that's their whole oh. name. See, both of them. Oh, so oh, you mean her name is just actually Katie? It's Katie. I like that. It's better. a fine name, Katie. She doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> she doesn't, doesn't matter. None of this matters. Okay. Uh, but after oh. a while, he started to... It's a Buddhist exercise. After a while, he started to run out of money because he was hanging out on the shore with his wife and kid. You know, right. like a like a lazy bum. Not swashbuckling. Right. He's got to get back to that. Yeah. Uh, so... The sea calls. Right. His mistress calls. His mistress. <laughs> I'm glad we were on the same page. Yes. <laughs> always. Always, Jacob. Uh, so he went to see his mistress to the sea again. And returned nine years later. They didn't ask any questions. You don't ask questions about what happens with the mistress. Nope. After three whole years of pastoral bliss with his family, again, he sails for Jamaica, where he's appointed the governor of the island. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's the governor of Jamaica. This is also true. I mean, theoretically, it's all true if you believe the pirate spirit John King, but Mm. Henry Morgan was the governor of Jamaica for a time. So is he going to grab his family and... Peace out to Nope, Jamaica? he dies before making a return oh, voyage to see his family oh, again. So he dies in Jamaica. Wow. Well, I feel bad now. Uh, but we don't, so, so the things that <laughs> are not off. in the Henry Morgan biography are the media mystic powers at sea. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the Katie Lambert, Katie King stuff. We don't know about his family life. Hmm. Oh, I much. forgot we're getting all of this info. This is all that he from said John, from... Yes, it's all from the oh my from God, Dr. I Child's forgot. account wow. in, yeah. given in his office between visits from his patients. Did he happen to mention to Dr. Child what the name of his ship was? No. Why? Do you know? No. I just think it's interesting. I like <laughs> We had many ships, it sounds like. He went on a variety of... Voyages. Yeah. Oh, but which one was his favorite? <laughs> I think it's very relevant information. <laughs> I feel like if you were really a pirate, if this was real, he would have had a favorite All right, let's ship. get somebody <laughs> off <laughs> mic to get us the name of Henry Morgan's pirate ship and we'll we'll come back to that savannah (laughs) all right so crossing into the spirit plane henry morgan who changed his name to john king or it was just changed for him by the spirits we don't know like when he was going through customs i'm confused well yeah maybe it was like when you got to ellis island how they couldn't pronounce your name they just changed it Henry Henry you're john king we're just calling you john king it's too well, hard to pronounce. Well, he became king of the pirates in the spirit world, so... So... It's just easier, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So he, he was surprised. To, it gets, this story gets sad now. Let's get ready for sad oh. times. Oh, wait. We have the name oh, of a boat. Oh, he's got an answer. Uh, it is his, his flagship in Henry Morgan's fleet. This guy had a fleet. Oh, he had wow. a fleet. Wow. So the flagship's name was The Satisfaction. So Sam Steen uh, off mic coming around for the brief history in a little bit. The flagship's name was the Satisfaction. Very nice. That's pretty satisfaction. That is a good (laughs) name. Mistress like the Satisfaction. Would love to know the real name if I was wrong. That's how the sea felt. Yeah, as he he crossed her. (laughs) They both felt satisfied at the end of their journey. Oh, let's get back to this story. Uh, So. Sad times coming. Oh, oh shit. Oh. He crosses into the spirit plane, changes his name to John King, and guess who's already there waiting for him? Oh, don't say. Like, his, his daughter. Star. She died before oh. him. Yes. Katie King. At least they 
got to hang out together. Yeah, yeah, at least they well, it's good, together, yeah, because again. he's now going to be surrounded by the ghosts of the many pirates and people he's plundered. Oh. <gasps> uh, and the victims of his crimes who will haunt him until he is able to make amends. So we're talking like hundreds of years he is haunted Yikes. by the spirits of this his makes victims. Being a part a lot less glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the effort required for atoning for all of his sins, though, strengthens him and his daughter. And his daughter's like, she's not she's not sinning, but she's like there to help dad through all of his trials. Aww. So she gets stronger and stronger by helping him, and he gets stronger and stronger, and they wind up taking lead roles in the spirit manifestations appearing to mediums back on the earth plane. Why did she end up where he was, though, if that's like his hell? Sort of. Yeah. Well, I think she wasn't confined to his hell, but she. I think the spiritualist notion is that you're drawn to like spirits. So he was drawn to the hell of his victims and fellow pirates, and she oh. was drawn to her father's spirit. Mm. So she wasn't confined to his hell, but she could visit it to help oh. him and leave whenever she felt like. Huh. And she, she was like teenage age? Yeah, okay. she would have been, yeah. Cool Young movie. and pretty. Yeah, I was yeah. just thinking that. It's going to be a really cool, cool movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to work on that next. Uh, Owen reported on his experiences with the spirits of John and Katie King and the mediumship of the Holmeses in the the Atlantic, which is still around as a magazine. In his I account... The ocean. Oh, well, yeah, also <laughs> the ocean. I was like, really? He didn't, like, just shout it into the ocean, though. <laughs> he read the pamphlet into the ocean. <laughs> yes, he tossed all of the pamphlets Every into the Sunday. sea. Watcher. Here, John King, to your mistress from whence yeah. you came. His mistress wanted to know how he was doing. <laughs> and Dr. Child. No. All right, so, but we're, we're now on Robert Dale Owen, who is not writing pamphlets. He's writing an article for The Atlantic magazine. Yes. In his account of the surfacing of the spirits of John and Katie King. The medium goes into a tall cabinet, just like William Eddy did, and there are two holes in the top of the cabinet. So this is somewhat new, because William's cabinet was off to the behind the stage. Now we've got a cabinet that's in the room, and there are holes at the top of the cabinet. This must be a big cabinet. It's like five or six feet high. Funny you should ask. You mean uh, person height? <laughs> yeah, person height. Yeah, because you got to walk in there yeah. and walk out. Mm. The medium sat inside the cabinet, and sometimes we tied her up. With Florence Cook, we did all oh. kinds of wacky things in England. The English medium, they would like chain her to the floor and stuff. And Ooh. but uh, this medium, uh, Kate, uh, what, Jenny Holmes, we would just like tie her to the chair so we could make sure she wasn't the one popping her head up in the holes when the spirits pop their heads up and stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, then, after we tied up Jenny Holmes, the spirit Katie King showed her face in one of the holes. Wow! How did she do that? <laughs> this amazed Owen, because the face was not like Jenny Holmes's face. And Jenny Holmes was the only person inside the cabinet, because there was room for no more people. <laughs> he was also a little skeptical, though. There might have been some means for Jenny Holmes or Nelson Holmes to produce the spectral head while concealed from her audience. Because we can't see her, so she could be doing all kinds of Harry Houdini stuff in there. She was, like, sticking her tongue out at him. Yeah, right? And, and Owen knows better than to just, like, go all in on this. He's not... I don't want us to think that Owen or Alcott, for that matter, are just, like, easily fooled. They're yeah. testing the hell out of this stuff. Okay. So the spirit Katie King opens the cabinet door then and appears in full form in a flowing white robe. Now this blows his socks off. So first she just showed her just head. Just her head and, and John she King would also out. show his head, but yeah. now she's popping out okay, now she's full, full form. form. You can see the whole spirit. 
Impressed but still skeptical, he proceeds to attend 40 more sittings. Holy wow. crap. At which he tests the authenticity of Katie King as a spirit. Katie King, we have to bear in mind, though, is a seductive presence. She challenges his objectivity by charming him with her otherworldly beauty and good nature. Yeah, she's an actor. June 19th, a circle of 25 persons. Each time that Katie issued from the cabinet, a brilliant, luminous hand emitting light showed itself at the left upper corner of the cabinet door. It pointed downward, sometimes waving toward Katie. The second time that she stepped out, she beckoned me to approach her. I did so extending my hand, which she pressed. Then, as I bent my head towards her, she took it in both hands and kissed it, uttering her usual low and earnest, God bless you, Mr. Owen. To remove the suspicion that Jenny was impersonating Katie, or somehow helping a confederate to sneak into the seance room, the next night, neither of the mediums entered the cabinet. This was something the medium Florence Cook, who was working across the ocean and also producing the same spirit Katie King, couldn't accomplish. Cook was always in her cabinet while the spirit cavorted with her sitters in the seance room. But in Philadelphia, after the cabinet was inspected and the door shut for the seance to begin, with the mediums not in the cabinet, but watching, three different spirits emerged, one at a time. One was the Indian woman Santee, more Indian spirits, American Indians. Another was a boy dressed in a sailor costume named Dick. <laughs> right? Cute. And the third was Katie King again. Each of the spirits came and went from the cabinet multiple times, seeming to need to recharge their spectral batteries while out of view of the audience. That's weird. Yeah, so they would come out, and then they'd be like, okay, I gotta go to the cabinet again, and then they come back out again. And then they go back. Would well, they have done that different if, like, come people out. started asking them questions and they were kind of being put on the spot? So like, I need to go out, like, figure no, out Google what I'm supposed to say. Yeah. yeah. But there, I, like, was there, there had to be somebody in the cabinet giving them the answers, which we did not have the technology for. Maybe at the time. it's just like the subject was changed now. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, so they used it to like change if the they, subject. Mm -hmm. Got a little too personal. <laughs> Okay. Uh, Katie gave Owen a lock of her hair, also a piece of her dress, which were physical specimens suitable for analysis, but also tokens of affection. Never in the best-bred lady of rank accosting her visitors have I seen Katie outrivaled. Anything more refined than the gentle sway of the body and turn of the head and gesture of the arm and hand as she passed around saying something pleasant or playful to each. I do not expect to witness till I reach that higher life once this visitant descended to teach and to charm us here which clouded his judgment. She's smart. Oh. So they were like, like, uh, hard. Physical? Physically hard. Like you can poke them. <laughs> While they were in the body, yes, but technically they were ectoplasmic. So um, there had to have been something unique about the hair and about the dress, mm -hmm. which they had sent off for testing, in the Eddie case anyway. Mm -hmm. I should start using that with like potential suitors and give them a piece of my clothing <laughs> or my hair to no. test. Yeah. So there was never a point, I guess, where they both mediums were trying to summon Katie King at the same time. That just never. Oh, happened. Florence Cook and yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like I guess not. Because aren't they in different? They're, they're in, in different, two different continents. Yep, on different continents. Did summoning anyone the same ever spirit. see if they tried to? <laughs> there was a case. We're going to hear about a case where <laughs> John King was summoned by two different seances at the same time. Well, I guess what I'm saying is the point would be if it does happen that way, then uh -huh. it's like, well, how do you we do that? Would they have been able to tell if it was happening? No, because, well, because communication have would have taken like a week. Right. So I guess that's what I'm saying is it seems. 
Yeah. Hmm. While Owen's objectivity might be subject to a healthy share of doubt, he also recorded bizarre appearances of Katie that flew in the face of any straight impersonation theory that she was simply a living human masquerading as a spirit. Let's go through this stuff. Now, this is where it gets weird. I'm, I'm sort of with you guys on, eh, this is all sort of like phony. But here's where it gets really bizarre. On July 9th, Katie King faded out and reappeared nine feet from Owen on the threshold of the cabinet. So if she's an actor, she's able to fade in front of you. So like how, like she was completely gone or she was like see-through? She like slowly faded away. Oh. Yeah, like a ghost in a movie. Hmm. What year is this? I think there's a trick. This is 1874. When was the projector the first invented? Not there yet. And we're going to talk about the... Well, we're going to get there. Mm-hmm. On the 14th, as Mr. Dreer guarded the stairs and the door to the parlor to prevent anyone from sneaking in the cabinet the back way, Katie appeared to Owen 18 inches tall. And That's then weird. gradually elongated, he says, like a telescope to her usual height. What? I don't like that. Yeah. She just started stretching. Yeah, that's actually how Lewis Carroll describes Alice. I was literally about to say that's Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) For his part, Henry Alcott observed similarly bizarre events in Chittenden at the Eddie seances. So let's just do a little comparison now. So these are the weirdest things happening. Let's do a little comparison with the Eddie seances. Mr. Owen tells us that when the figure that he supposes to have been the original and real Katie King dissolved her materialized body in Philadelphia, she faded away into thin vapor and gradually disappeared. Whereas Honto, in my presence one evening, losing her power, sank, as it were, into the floor, up to her waist, the upper portion of her body retaining its full solidity. These bizarre feats could not be achieved by an impersonator with a physical body. If the spirit was a fraud and was able to shrink and expand and drop below the floorboards up to its waist, her waist, it would have to have been an optical illusion. And that brings us to today's brief history. We'll be drawing on research from an article in Theater Notebook by Russell Burdekin, as well as 19th century handbooks on illusion from William Goldston and the French magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Whoa. That's the guy that Harry Houdini took his name from. But Houdini had real problems with people who inspired him because he ultimately decided that the guy was a real jerk. I think Houdini had a lot of problems. He had a lot of issues. Okay, Uh, so we're going to invite uh, Sam Steen into the circle for today's Brief History, our neophyte Sam Steen. A Brief History of Pepper's Ghost. In the 19th century, there was really only one trick capable of producing distorted images of the human form, and that was Pepper's Ghost. Okay, so if we're seeing something that looks like an optical illusion, this has to be what they're using. Oh yeah, it is Pepper's Ghost. Okay, (laughs) well, let's find out. Mm Let's see, if you had to look through a window in daylight, you see out of it into your front yard or backyard or whichever yard you're trying to see. Uh, If you look through that same window at night with the light on in your room and darkness outside, the brightness of the inside light will cause your own image to reflect back at you rather than seeing much of the outdoors. All right, so you got this example, right? So if we go outside right in the middle of the day, because the light's even on both sides, you see through the window. But when we... Dis, we change the equilibrium of the light, we have the light behind us, then we see our own reflection in the glass. We don't see outside. Henry Dirks, I like that name, 
of Great Britain came up with the idea in 1858 and Professor John Pepper modified and put it into action in 1862. Yeah, see, Pepper gets all the credit. Poor Dirks. Your man there, Sam. It's not Dirks' ghost. Yeah, it's not Dirks. <laughs> Dirks got... It's probably for the best, though, really. Yeah, right? it sounds Dirks good. got dirked by Pepper. I don't know. It's, it's a verb now. It's our verb. Sam's working his way into the circle here. Yeah. Joke uh, by joke. From then, it was used in all sorts of stage productions to produce ghosts from the standpoint of the audience. Many stages had pits or spaces below. Um, to create a ghost, this space was covered in black cloth. An actor stood in the pit, illuminated by a gas lamp. Uh, the heat of the lamp gave this room the nickname, The Oven. Yeah, Ooh. so you're like in a room with a little flame covered in curtains. <laughs> that could go bad. <laughs> Uh, the actor's image reflected off a mirror placed at the downstage or far front of the pit and angled up towards a glass pane. Is that a pane? Yeah, it's a pane of glass that's a downstage. Oh. Uh, so we have two panes of glass that are angled toward each other. One is facing you under the stage, and you're illuminated by this gas lamp, and then the other one is angled so that it catches the reflection of your reflection in the glass below. Oh, we so did like two mirrors. We did that in when I was in high school when we did uh, Phantom of the Opera. We used it for the Phantom, like to introduce him. Wow. Oh. Yeah. That was. They, that's where they got it. There yeah, you go. Yeah, dude. You were using 150-year-old technology. Yeah, dude. We just had someone's dad do it. <laughs> <laughs> they used this trick in the Haunted Mansion in Disney World. Too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Keep going. Uh, you'll see, the glass plane stood uh, between the audience and the actors appearing on stage so that they both saw the translucent ghost in the glass and the actor interacting with the ghost standing behind the glass. You got it? So mm -hmm. the ghost is reflected on the glass that's between the audience and mm -hmm. the actor. The actor standing behind that glass, so when you from the audience look, you see the reflected image of the actor that's under the stage. And that's the ghost, because it's sort of, like, translucent. You can mm -hmm. see through him. And then you see the actual actor, you know, whatever, stabbing him. Wouldn't the actor look exactly like the... Well, it's two different actors. Oh. The actor the under the stage is oh, playing oh, the ghost, okay, and the actor mind. on stage gotcha. is talking to the ghost. They're going to be really good at, like, timing, and I guess they rehearse that a lot. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're not seeing, from your perspective on stage, the same thing that's happening under the pit. It's also very limited with what you can do. You have to be in that one space. It's not like they have a... What is it called? The oven? Yeah. That's super long where you, you can walk around. You don't have a big oven, yeah. You have a tiny oven. You couldn't touch them or else. Well, you would shatter the glass. Yeah. Well, that's what I was about to say. <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is you don't get the chance to touch them that in that. Sure. No, so but from the audience's perspective, it could look like you're touching them. But wouldn't the person know if well, they're not touching Well, this is for, like, stage them? plays. For stage, yeah. yeah. So I guess I'm thinking if know. we're applying this to what we're well, talking about there. on the episode. Yeah, we got to get there. You're, you're moving too quickly, sorry. Grand I'm Master. I'm trying to figure it out. All right, let's carry on here. Let's see. Pepper Tor doing a scenes from Dickens, The Haunted Man, and the show was a hit. Yeah, Dickens loved ghosts. He did. Yeah, yeah. he liked depression. Dickens and Dirk. Yep. I don't know if they were friends, but cool names. I'm going to say yep. Go on. Uh, other shows revolving around the use of ghosts cropped up, but it wasn't handy for regular plays because the glass was so cumbersome and not easily, not easily removed. Yeah, you need this giant pane of glass that you have to haul around to put the ghost up, and like it has to just be there. You have to get it out of the way if you want to keep doing the play. On the, you know what I mean? Oh, like, there's yeah. a point on the stage where you just can't cross. Like, the ghost may have gone, 
and is not in the next 15 scenes, but you still got a big-ass pane of glass. That's <laughs> Right. If yeah. Ken Island High School can do it, anyone can do it. Okay. It's inspirational. Yes. Now our international listeners are aware of Ken Island High School's achievement. <laughs> yeah, <they were> <laughs> plug. Shameless plug. But they shouldn't because it was done on a soundtrack and not a live band. Oh, yeah, burn. Yeah. Carry on. Yeah. We, didn't have good we don't do that here at the college. We use live music. All right, yep. way to flex on me, Rob. <laughs> Let's see. So for the most part, almost no one went to the trouble to stage Hamlet's father's ghost this way. Yeah, it um, seemed natural, right, that we should mm-hmm. do Hamlet's father's ghost, but it was such a pain in the butt yeah. that we were like, no, screw it. We have to do Hamlet. Why would we do it with a giant pane <laughs> yeah. of glass on stage? It's not worth it. <laughs> Let's see, but that doesn't mean the technology didn't get around. Uh, in the 1870s, spectral opera companies uh, toured around with singing shows, making use of the ghost device featuring adaptations of Faust and a Christmas Carol. Yeah, the Dr. Faustus, the story of Dr. Faustus. He goes down to hell and the spirits and the That's devils and all that. Opera? Yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? Cool. Yeah. That sounds yeah. amazing. And of course, more Dickens. And that's a brief history of Pepper's Ghost. Nice job, Sam. Oh, thanks, guys. Good job. Yeah, Sam's first to be here. First episode of uh, second year here, and uh, Don't need to clap making yourself. strides. All right, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. All right, so getting back to Olivia's questions here. To buy that Pepper's ghost can explain the seance phenomena of the materializing mediums, we have to believe some things. First, that neither Henry Alcott nor Robert Dale Owen in their careful examinations of the seance rooms detected a giant sheet of glass debunked hiding somewhere in the vicinity of the cabinet. Underneath the eddy circle room was the dining room of their house and their kitchen. No room for an oven. I mean, wait. Yeah, an actual it's oven. A yeah. yeah, not a fake, ah. not a theater oven. Mm. For the Holmeses, their seances often took place in apartments, so you would have to rent the apartment below you and oh. carve a hole in the floor huh. and on People and on. do that for burglaries all the time. <laughs> Burglaries? Yeah, I can't say it, but. Oh. You like, mean in cartoons? No, like. <laughs> no, like. Did they take like, a little stall and like. <laughs> no, like the biggest diamond heist? That's how they did it. Was Never mind. That's a common thing, and like. In burglaries. Yeah. Well, this is not a burglary. I know, I'm just saying, it's possible. It's a hoax. There's burgling... I'm sorry. Robert Houdin, the French magician Robert Houdin, from whom Houdini took his name, as we mentioned, described how Pepper's ghost could be done without a space below. But it involved a giant pane of glass at a 30-degree angle in front of the audience. So again, something that you probably would notice. It'd be hard to miss that. That glass would have to be brought in and out of the seance room without anyone noticing when the lights were dimmed and not a moment sooner, right? Because if the lights are on, you can totally see that glass. Mm -hmm. It would also have to be done with a nearly flawless sheet of glass to complete the illusion. Any flaws would reflect the the light. But uh, but let's suppose, for, for example, that there's some configuration of glass and mirrors we're not thinking of and that it's possible to produce an optical illusion using an actor. There were a bunch of circumstances at both the Eddies and with John and Katie King in which a Pepper's ghost could not explain the phenomenon away, even if that were the case. With the Eddies, the spirit sank into the floor sharply and disappeared, and, in Honto's case, re-emerged from the cabinet fully formed again. How did the actor do that? Yeah. Mrs. Cleveland, the only person... Al- back to Mrs. Cleveland. <laughs> the only person Olcott observed to have touched Honto was dancing with the spirit one night when her body dissolved. What? Right. Ew. 
too. You like, mentioned oh. that earlier. Yeah. I know, because yeah. I was saving it for what now. It like dissolved. Like, huh? it just dissipated? Well, yeah, no, it wasn't like the Wicked Witch of the West. She, I'm just she checking. She vanished. Sure. You yeah, say she ectoplasm and... Yeah, but that, that'll, that'll vanish. It'll evaporate, essentially. Poof. Poof. Oh. Well, yeah, slowly. Slowly. <laughs> <laughs> if Hanto was a Pepper's illusion, she could not be touched, let alone danced with. If she was a person, she could not dissolve. Good point. <laughs> the only possible explanation here is that an unimagined Pepper's ghost setup created the ghosts, and Mrs. Cleveland was in on the trick and part of the illusion. That could be a thing. It's possible. But even this scenario doesn't quite pan out because on the night, on that very night, Henry Olcott, the investigator, weighed and measured Honto. She was five feet tall and three inches high, and she should have weighed, you know, a person about that size should weigh about 130 pounds, give or take. But according to his scale, she weighed 88 pounds. Okay, but I'm five, three, and I'm literally 5'3", and I don't you weigh... You weigh 88 pounds? No, but I don't weigh 130 pounds. But 88 pounds, man. That's I know, I'm really just like saying. That's unusually small. Well, if she's, mm-hmm. you know, she could... And she doesn't necessarily look 88 pounds, right? What if she like, I feel doesn't like... have a good diet? Well, it's yeah, a strange weight goes... for a person, but it's an especially strange weight for a glass holograph. I mean, that's true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, the fact that she had any weight at all rules out the idea that she could have been produced as an optical illusion. The Holmeses would also have had to stage a Pepper's Ghost to produce the elongating, levitating, and vanishing of Katie King, and then also produce a flesh and blood actor to make contact with Owen and give him hair and dress parts. Again, optical illusions can't hand you stuff. And they would have had to have restaged Pepper's Ghost at apartments across the Midwest when they went on a tour with the King seances, hauling a big sheet of glass along with them that no one ever picked up on as they traveled (laughs) through the Midwest. No one noticed it going through towns. What is that big square under the the fabric there that they've got? Mm. They just have very flat luggage. (laughs) Stage magic of the time period simply cannot provide a neat explanation of the materialized spirits produced, which brings us back to the idea of a confederate. This was, as Alcott noted, or, you know, actors. As Alcott noted in People from the Other World, this was the only possible explanation, other than they are spirits. Spirits or there's actors somehow getting involved. A series of confederates were aiding the medium in the illusion, like Mrs. Cleveland, perhaps, and whoever the actress was playing Honto. This is a way of understanding this. A window had been cut, as I mentioned, in the Eddie's cabinet to prevent the medium from passing out during the hot summer months, because there's no air conditioning. (laughs) But Olcott had covered it with a mosquito net and waxed on it with his personal seal. Um, which stayed there throughout the seances. The netting was never disturbed. There was also, from his standpoint, no means in or out of the cabinet. But if no one else was in the cabinet with him, who's to say he didn't just reseal it? Is the window... Can the audience see the Well, if you break the seal, then you can tell, because he's stamped it. Isn't this Alcott? Who are we talking Alcott's about? Alcott's investigating, but that would mean William Eddy would have had to get oh, his hands God, on Alcott's. Oh, God, there's so many people yeah, involved. I know, I know. <laughs> Alcott's investigating. It's the Eddies who would be faking it. <sighs> That's what so I they mean. had to get one over on, on Alcott here. We're back in Vermont. Back in Vermont. We're going back and forth here between Katie King and Vermont, trying to do a little comparison. Maybe the Confederate was hiding in plain sight and simply eluded detection, another possible solution. Robert Houdin describes how a cabinet can be constructed with mirrors that make it seem like the cabinet is empty by reflecting the walls as if they are the back, but in fact someone hides inside behind the mirrors. 
But how could a close inspection by Owen or Alcott miss the presence of these mirrors, even when they were folded up against the walls? This sort of trick might even help to explain how a confederate snuck into the seances to impersonate the spirit, but it doesn't account for the distorted, diminishing, and vanishing figures. We've still got that problem. Mm -hmm. How are they doing all these weird bodily distortions? Although Olcott had no luck discovering an impersonator at the Eddies, Owen and Child were not so lucky with John and Katie King. All right, now we're finally getting around to the story we began with. Eliza White is the um. actor playing Katie King. Is it true? Question mark. We don't know with the Eddies, by the way. I'm done with them. Mm -hmm. There was never anyone who came out and said, I was acting the spirit of Honto. The Eddies did have a lot of brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm sort of curious about whether or not they could have been acting the parts. Mm -hmm. But again, these bodily distortions, we just didn't have the technology to accomplish these yeah. as fakes. So I don't know how they were produced. I get this report from Arthur Conan Doyle's History of Spiritualism, Volume 1. That's right. Wait, what? The author who brings us Sherlock Holmes was the committed spiritualist and wrote two volumes of the history of the movement. Oh. Are you, wow. Really yeah. boring to read? How did he have time? You know. He's writing all those other things. It's basically the same thing over and over right. again. There's hounds and marshes and things that go missing, and then Sherlock Holmes sees a speck somewhere, and it all comes from raveling. It's all the same guy. <laughs> Mystery solved. Eliza White confessed to being Katie King and offered to prove it by producing the clothing and ornaments that King wore during the seances. She was 23 with an 8-year-old child. She married at 15, and her husband had died in 1872, so she says. She met the Holmeses when they lodged with her in March 1874, and they engaged her to impersonate a spirit for them. She came through a false door in the back of the cabinet in order to fool Owen and company. A railroad contractor named Leslie came to a performance and pressed her to confess. I'm assuming not during the performance, but like <laughs> afterwards. Mm -hmm. And she performed a mock seance showing this guy, Leslie, as well as Owen and Child, how she had fooled them. So she's claiming that Owen and Child knew that she was a fake. No, Owen and Child were fooled by her. Oh, I thought she said she showed them. She, a mock. Now she is. Now, yeah, now, now she's. Yeah, Eliza White shows up and she's like, I am going to confess I've been Katie King all along, okay, and I yeah. fooled you, Owen, and I fooled you, Child, and you pumped your pamphlets and threw them into the sea. <laughs> now you, now you should throw them into the sea because I have been impersonating the spirit all along. Hmm. But wait, so she was the one showing up to his office too, she's claiming? Theoretically. All the but same the girl. What? Well, but, okay, and also, does she look like the spirit? Because Owen kind of had a crush on her, right? We're getting there. Yeah. It was at this point in the story that Henry Alcott got involved. So Henry Alcott had been investigating the Eddie seances, and now yeah. he's going to come and investigate the Katie King seances. So Robert Dale Owen has just had his butt handed to him. Mm -hmm. uh, and <laughs> Dr. Child is doing none so well either. So, like, please, Henry Alcott, help us. We're in a real jam here. And here he comes, riding to the rescue, the colonel, making it happen. Okay. So, Alcott travels to Washington, D.C. He's not in Philly. He goes oh. to Washington, D.C. because that's where Eliza's supposedly dead husband, Winstead White, lives. And they go for a walk together. What? Yes. Oh. <laughs> so she's alive. Yes. Oh. They walk the streets of Washington, D.C., uh, Alcott and Winstead, Winstead White here, and they discuss... Uh, Winstead's relationship with Eliza. Eliza Potter 
had met Winstead White after he took her family in when her father died. She bore him a son and joined him in the defenses of Washington City during the Civil War. Afterward, he became the proprietor of a saloon and traveled with a sideshow of natural curiosities and clog dancers. <laughs> also ballad singers. Oh, nice. That, that's, that's a nice, yeah. Yeah. That's get all those I'm pieces together. In evening entertainment. Clog dancing, ballad singing, curiosities. <laughs> and Eliza took part in both the dancing and the singing. Oh, she dances and sings? She dances and sings. Contrary <laughs> to Eliza's argument that she had made a persuasive Katie because she was a talented variety show performer, her husband expressed a particularly poor opinion of her, <laughs> of her acting talents. <laughs> Not a triple threat. <laughs> Not a triple threat. Uh, Eliza fought with Winstead over whether or and how he was supporting her family. Oh, and then Winstead's alcoholic son by another woman somehow got involved, and Eliza was like, I'm out of here, and she and her 10-year-old boy, not 8-year-old boy, depart for Philadelphia in January 1874, where she takes a job running a lodging house. There's so, so much to unpack. She lied about being married. Yes. She lied about how old her, how son, old was. her son was. Uh-huh. She lied about being talented. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't really lie about being married. She lied that her husband was dead. He wasn't dead. He's oh. alive and well. But she abandoned him, essentially. Right. Were they actually married? Uh, theoretically, yeah. She took on his last name anyway. Oh, okay. Okay. So, Alcott discovers a letter Eliza White had written to Jenny and Nelson Holmes that casts further suspicion on her version of events. Let's hear that letter now. A man named Leslie came to me. He said, You look a good deal like Katie King, and if you know anything and will tell me all about it, several gentlemen and myself will pay you $1,000 and stand by you and guarantee and protect you. We will pay you the money in advance. We want to stop all the spiritual business that is going on all over the country. We will put the Holmeses down if you will only tell me and my friends all you know about it. I told him I did not know anything about your affairs, that if you were not genuine mediums, there was none. How funny that everybody should think I'm the spirit. How absurd. Never trust a man that says that. He's going to stand by you? Yes. <laughs> it's all a lie. And protect you? Snaps. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Alcott had discovered that Katie King had appeared several times in the Holmes's trip through the Midwest, namely in Michigan, when Eliza White was in Philadelphia. So the spirit was still Weird. appearing without her. Yeah. Oh. Dr. Child had paid Eliza White to pose in a photograph as Katie King. This is where it all sort of comes out here. So this is sort of the solution to this. If she's lying about this, why is she lying about this? Well, as it turns out, the good doctor could not get a picture of Katie King. So he calls, he says to Eliza White, oh, you over there, you look a lot like the spirit. Can I take a picture of you and pretend you're the spirit in the photograph, but not necessarily at the seances? Oh. So this tips her off to the idea that she can impersonate the impersonator of Katie King. She's like, I am a good actress. Oh. After all. Aha. <laughs> yeah. It's likely that this is what made her the target of Leslie and the YMCA, the request for a photograph. <laughs> I, I just think you don't want to be the target of the YMCA. Is that what yeah. that song's about? Yep. Uh, <laughs> young man, yeah. But as Olcott's investigation revealed, if Katie King was a fake, Eliza White was not her impersonator. Still, even though Olcott had exposed the Eliza White hoax, opening the door for the Holmes's Katie King to be a real supernatural presence, Olcott himself was still unsure what to make of the materializations. He could tell that there was something supernatural about them, but he wasn't convinced that they were the spirits of the dead. Hmm. hmm. So they were other spirits? Something supernatural is going on. Mm. What Possession? could it be? 
He didn't understand himself to have been fully converted to the spiritualist interpretation of these walking, talking, singing, dancing, fully visible ghosts. And he denied the role of advocate. He was an investigator, he said, who reported the facts, just the facts, ma'am, and was not a believer. Mm -hmm. My whole usefulness as an investigator would be destroyed by my assuming the part of a propagandist. That is until someone gave him something he was willing to believe in. And that someone, here we go, finally we're going to get the last character into this. Oh, my oh is she back? <laughs> was Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. <gasps> oh, she's back. After meeting Blavatsky at the Yeti seances, Alcott crossed paths with her again when she accepted an offer to translate his Chittenden letters into Russian. Alcott and Blavatsky became fast friends, and he began spending a great deal of time with her, during which he discovered that Blavatsky had a kind of relationship with the paranormal that he'd never come across before. Her mediumship is totally different from that of any person I have ever met, for instead of being controlled by spirits to do their will, it is she who seems to control them to do her bidding. He wondered if she might be a part of a secret occult order and noted the jeweled emblem she wore, which seemed to suggest membership in an Eastern bro Brotherhood. What are we getting jeweled yes. emblems? Um, they're on order, but oh, they're on back order. She's a fancy lady, I love her. But Blavatsky refused to comment on the subject. She's too high class for that. <laughs> in her apartments, Alcott had long conversations with Blavatsky's familiar spirit. Amazingly, this spirit knew the full history of the Holmes controversy, revealing details about the affair before Alcott himself uncovered them. What? What is the spirit world? Is it just like one big game of telephone? Like, <laughs> yes. Everyone's just gossiping. Yeah, it's an endless rumor tea. mill. I'm kind of excited. <laughs> the spirit of Helena Blavatsky hanging out in her apartment turned out to be none other than the ex-buccaneer John King. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's how he knew everything that was going on in the Holmes affair. Because he was like the head honcho. Yeah, he was in there the whole time. And it was his daughter. Yes. John King had been popping up at seances around the world, by the way. I didn't mention this. He wasn't just at the Holmes seances in Philly. He was an international celebrity, John King the Spirit. Doing a press tour. He surfaced as far away as Russia, amazing the paranormal journalist Alexander Akasov, the same person who had employed Blavatsky to translate Alcott's letters on the Eddy seances, through the mediumship of a British medium named C.L. Williams. John King floated into the seance as a ball of light from which his recognizable bust materialized. That's the rest of his head parts. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Down to his shoulders. Oh, not, his, not his bosoms. What? Okay, but, so he's literally just a floating bust? He's a floating bust. It's like the, in Russia, anyway. The bust in Haunted Mansion. Yeah, 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 yeah that's him. Reference. There we go. So he showed his face and his beard and a turbaned head in a green phosphorescence. He surfaced regularly at Jonathan Coons's seances in Athens County, Ohio. One night, he broke the news to Coons's sitters that he couldn't stay because he had double booked himself. <laughs> a real faux pas. And was oh due God. to be at a different seance on the other side of the world. This is awesome. This Coons, is so isn't it? This is cool. Uh, so Coons scolded him for this. We'll hear from Coons and King here. What do you mean you're leaving? I'm sorry, but I'm needed at another circle. You promised to stay with my circle tonight. A moment. King? Hello, King? Five minutes passed during which Coons and his circle could get no response. Then King returned. A speaking trumpet which sat on the table rose up and began to sound the voice of the spirit pirate. I've deputed a portion of my band to attend the other circle and will stay myself and preside over the performance of the evening here with Mr. Coons. That's more like it. 
With my band so distributed, I must caution you that we'll not be able to make such good music as usual. Fine. How is this not a bigger story? It, we're making it right now, the story that it needs to be. Yeah. We're giving it the attention it deserves. That's amazing. I don't, I don't right? Know. It's bizarre. Okay, so this strange little story of uh, Coons and King draws out two important features of the role John King played in 19th century spiritualism. First, he was a popular guest, called on by occultists in many corners of the globe to perform supernatural feasts. Feats. Feasts. <laughs> he didn't provide feasts. Oh, that's upsetting. Second, most believed him to be the master of all of the materializing spirits appearing to mediums throughout the world. Like, not just pirates. He's all, everybody. all He's the materializing spirits. Really he master. was their master. That's that's a pretty big resume. It was <laughs> through King and by his permission that they were allowed to appear to the Eddies and the Holmeses and to Florence Cook. Back in Blavatsky's apartment, right, because it wasn't just, like it was Indian spirits and Little Dick and all these guys hanging out. And they all had to get... They all got to get his... Him. Yeah, he was the guy. What? He was that's the master. his last name is King. <laughs> Yeah, right? Back in Blavatsky's apartment, Alcott had purchased a new notebook. Blavatsky told him to hold the blank book to his bosom inside his jacket. After a moment's pause, he took it out, and on the first page he read the name John King, comma, Henry de Morgan, with an elaborate drawing of a Rosicrucian jewel incorporating Blavatsky's name and his own. Ooh, we're bringing the Rosicrucians back. Oh, thank you. It's getting wild. They always yeah, <laughs> Lucy's disappointed that the Rosicrucians have returned. I just like what did they, what did they even do? Different episode. <laughs> I know. Uh, I listened to it and it was. Like, <laughs> I was just, still I was not still impressed. Like... <laughs> Through the power of John King, Blavatsky caused a framed photograph to disappear and be replaced by a sketch portrait of the pirate spirit master himself. And the notebook. <laughs> or no. No, this is in a this is in a frame on the wall. On oh, the notebook, we have the incident. the jewel drawing. He draws a lot, and King drew a portrait of a large man's face on the ceiling of her apartment that same night, causing Blavatsky's hair to grow several inches just because he could. What? I need what? that yes. in my life ASAP. I'm, I'm losing my hair, and um, also, <laughs> call up John King. Yeah, how to. much to buy that paint or that thing that he drew? Oh, I don't I even know. It. I don't know if it's still around. <laughs> well, we'll have to we'll have to search that down. I want it. In one of his most amazing feats, Alcott asked John King to prove himself by copying a note that had passed between E.W., Eliza White, right, and Robert Dale Owen. Alcott had come to possess this secret note, and it was inside his jacket pocket. No one else had seen it, including Helena Blavatsky. The next night, Blavatsky told Alcott to pass a dictionary, a pen knife, and a mucilage bottle, or a bottle of glue, under a table. And the note appeared exactly as it looked in the original on the flyleaf of the dictionary. So you open the dictionary and you see a, like a facsimile copy of the note. Wow. Hmm. King had disintegrated bits of the metal knife and glued them on to create the copy. What? Which brings us back yet again to the mystery of Katie and John King in the cabinet of Jenny and Nelson Holmes. A cabinet on which a considerable shadow of doubt had been cast. As a final test of the Holmes controversy, Olcott conducted his own experimental seance with Jenny Holmes in his apartments. He's got complete control over the circumstances. For this performance, he covered the cabinet in netting to prevent anyone coming or going through any part of it except the front door, and stuck the medium in a bag. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> wow. Despite all the charges of fraud and deception, and with Eliza White far from this event, 
the faces of John and Katie King managed to appear in the apertures of the cabinet. According to Alcott's new friend Helena Blavatsky, though, these faces were not the work of the medium Jenny Holmes, because Blavatsky herself was present for this test. Oh, Wait, so, so... I, I don't get it. Are you saying, like, because she was there, John King also comes to her? Is that what you're saying? That she could have just materialized him while sitting there? Oh. Yeah. Blavatsky produced the spirit of John King. Jenny Holmes did not. Selecting a few of the faithful, I went to the Holmeses, and, helped by M and his power, brought out the faces of John King and Katie King from the astral light, produced the phenomena of materialization, and allowed the spiritualists at large to believe that this was done through the medium of Mrs. Holmes. She was terribly frightened herself, for she knew that this once the apparition was real. She was like, I'm gonna show you a spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it was such like a gentle, like, yeah. snap. She gently snapped, and there it was. That's like like a really like action hero move, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> Blavatsky is an international action hero of the occult, for sure. <laughs> as we will find out. This is only the beginning. Okay. So this comes from a note Blavatsky wrote to Alcott that ended up in his memoir, what we just heard from her. Uh, the spirits of Katie and John King were real on the night of Alcott's test. But if we listen closely to, Blava to what Blavatsky has to say, Jenny Holmes was as surprised as anyone else to see them, suggesting that Blavatsky believed they were not real on any other night. This is a curious way of processing the Holmes controversy, because Blavatsky both affirms that some or all of the Holmes seances were a hoax, and that materialized spirits are genuine all in the same breath. <laughs> <laughs> this, according to Alcott, was the mission that, he, that had been given her by her masters. Blavatsky was born in the Ukraine and styled herself a Russian noblewoman. She had traveled around the world and most recently booked passage aboard a ship traveling from Paris to New York. She was, according to her own account, on a mission from a secret order of occult adepts, who she called her masters. Blavatsky would be the public face of these secret men. Under their guidance, and using her own superior occult knowledge and power, she was to help perpetuate the spiritualist movement despite the eccentricities that were destined to send spiritualism into its precipitous decline, which are what we've been talking about, these eccentricities of spirits popping out dancing and playing violins and touching hair. In the midst of saving the spiritualists from their own mediums, Blavatsky would also endeavor to help transition the spiritualists from their belief that all paranormal mediumistic phenomena were the work of the spirits of the dead to her master's more sophisticated occult understanding. The master supernaturalism included a much wider spectrum of beings and phenomena produced by living adepts. Believers could, the masters said, use their own occult power to achieve supernatural feats, like projecting their spirit across vast distances, conjuring and controlling nature demons, and communicating with fellow occultists around the world using only supernatural technology. They hoped to bring their wisdom to a new generation of occultists, and Blavatsky would be their vehicle to achieve this lofty goal. She was working for the Brotherhood of Luxor, seven adepts situated somewhere in Egypt. These masters communicated with Blavatsky in secret letters that they caused to materialize mysteriously in her apartment, rather than sending them through the postal service like normal people. Yeah, you gotta keep it under wraps. <laughs> I wouldn't use the postal service if I didn't have to. <laughs> wasn't we here at a call convention. Postal service or support. I have complete USPS. faith in the United States Postal Service. But if you could just materialize things. As Olcott <laughs> grew closer to Blavatsky and her occult secrets, the masters took an interest in him and the role he might play in their work, John King. 
functioning as their amanuensis, brought these masters to Olcott after a seance. Olcott was unaware of their visit. They were creeping. But the masters Serapis Bay of the Elora section, Polydorus Isiuranus of the section of Solomon, and Robert Moore of the section of Zoroaster, all joined together, right? That guy. Joined together to pay this super secret, somewhat creepy, clandestine call on Olcott. So these three guys are creeping on him. But who was John King? Was he a servant of these masters or Blavatsky's familiar spirit? And could he also have been the spirit of the pirate Henry Morgan? Alcott believed, and here's the solution, that there were in fact three John Kings. One, an elemental spirit controlled by Helena Blavatsky. Two, the spirit of Henry Morgan, dead. Three, a messenger and servant of living adepts, who might be alive. Oh. Yeah. In this way, John King was all at once the primitive paranormalism of the Americas of the Americans talking to dead people. Blavatsky's more advanced occultism, secret familiars that she's communicating with, and the secret higher knowledge of the occult brotherhood, their messenger going back and forth. John King's work as a supernatural counterpart to Blavatsky was to stoke the Western imagination to a fiery exploration of new possibilities in the world of the paranormal. In one of many letters to Master Serapis Bay that Master Serapis Bay wrote to Olcott, he laid this project out explicitly. One who prepares for solving the infinite must solve the finite first. The ideal of the spiritual can penetrate only through the imagination which is the leading path and the first gate to the conceptions and impressions of the earthly atma. Jenny and Nelson Holmes were, from Blavatsky's perspective, frauds, but the concept of the materializing spirit fired the American imagination and was an important step toward a kind of collective national spiritual enlightenment. We're all going to get better in our occultism, thanks to Blavatsky and John King. She will, I feel they will like, make us stronger. Why was this suppressed? Like, I've never heard of this before, and I've always been interested in this kind of stuff, like, all my life. I mean, not that I've ever looked that deeply into the cult, but, like, the world could be so much better right now. If only we listened to Helena Blavatsky. Yeah. We're listening. We're starting it right here. New wave. Gonna listen to Blavatsky for a while. Through the mediation of her familiar spirit, John King, Blavatsky was able to save the spirits from the fraudulence of Jenny and Nelson Holmes because she possessed a real power, a controlling power over her, her familiar at the bidding of occult masters living several continents away. The trouble is, not everyone believed these secret brothers, unlike Savannah. Uh, <laughs> and in first. they didn't believe that the brothers necessarily had the best interests of humanity in mind. Yes. Some, in fact, believed that Blavatsky was an unwitting agent of a vast conspiracy to manipulate and control the human race for nefarious or at least anti-democratic purposes. John King is only the tip of an iceberg in a story that is about to take us around the world and back in search of Blavatsky's masters. Sweet, because wow. I'm trying to get some. Get some masters. All I right. I really didn't. I don't feel uh, sad. Like I don't feel satisfied. Like I have figured it out. I don't want you to feel satisfied okay, because good. we have four more episodes of Blavatsky I, exploration to go. Well, also, and one of our things is to not know the answer you know right, you i don't can. need to know the answer i'm just more confused about john king than i think I was <laughs> to begin well i'm with. done with john king we're out of the john king uh, well, that's business. what i'm talking about not blavatsky i'm talking I, about john i really king. like olcott's idea that there's multiple john kings and they're sort of all trading on the name yeah. john king so that they pick the name john sense. king because it has some, some capital to some it so they weren't like yeah. all it was like him and then they all just kind of like separated off of him it was like different Ooh, things. Like that, they well, were splintered that's, that's what i was thinking yeah when you said that could be. Mm. Because you can send your astral spirit out. Yeah. 
Or so, multiple deities oh. could claim the same name. They could True. just choose to do that. Well, yeah. Spirits, elementals, what have yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's get to our order of confessors today. Time to confess. Well, let's bring Shannon over here. Uh, we're going to get to the t-shirt contest in a minute. Shannon, how's it going? It's, it's going well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now we want to do this officially, Shannon. I want, to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about a message that I had this week. Uh, and while I do that, I would like you to uh, go on to our Instagram feed. And it's now everyone who has tagged our reptilian post with three friends. Yes. yes. Okay, we want to assign each of those people a number. Got it. Okay. Uh, so Shannon's going to go ahead, and, and I guess they're in order, right? So we'll assign them an order, a descending order from the top down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so I heard from an uh, interesting f- person, Rachel, uh, over over the interwebs. She sent Rachel. us an email. Yeah. So Rachel is starting her own uh, cult-themed podcast. Yeah. Well, don't get so excited right away. What if she's competing with us? Uh, boo. We should be no, she's not. She's not. She's not. She's not. <laughs> we gotta make uh, friends in the occult world. Yeah, oh, that's true, Shannon. Yeah, see, Shannon's our our, our good angel sitting on our shoulder with her hail. Go back to counting. So, okay. uh, Rachel is not creating a competing podcast, but I think uh, a friendly podcast. She's creating a podcast called Life Mancy, and uh, I was out walking my dog the other day, and I thought I'd have a listen, and I thought it was really charming. So I, I dropped her five stars and uh, go go have a listen. Basically, what she's doing is she's relating experiences in her life to uh, pagan stuff, spells and things. Oh, super blood moon. She's talking about the blood moon. Oh, yeah. Uh, so uh, she was also well, she wrote to us because she's uh, podcasting from Texas, and uh, we've we've been talking about Texas a lot lately. I didn't even realize. <laughs> Yeah, well, we talked about Texas with Aleister Crowley. He went into Texas. That's what oh. she originally wrote about. And I was like, oh, and by the way, bigger in oh Texas. we talk about all these murder that. cults in Texas, yes. too. So she, yeah. she's she been learning a lot about uh, Texas occultism that she's going to bring to her podcast because she wants to talk more about her home state, Aww. which That's is really where cool. her podcast is based. So, so thanks, Rachel, for the message. And uh, we look forward to, you know, an unfolding relationship there with you. And what's it <laughs> called again, her podcast? It's called Life Mancy. Life Mancy. Life Mancy. Cool. Life, man, see. Like Nancy, but Nancy. Yeah, and uh, uh, we did hear uh, from our friend Emery, a graduate student in uh, religious studies, I believe, studying Jesus Times, uh, Olivia. And he was just horrified by everything that David Icke had to say about Gnosticism. Really? Just horrified. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally horrified. I I understand. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think he he was in on the joke. Don't get me wrong, but he was totally horrified. Okay, Shannon, let's do this t shirt contest. All right. Can we have like a jump roll? We can. Like... So Savannah's got the, our, our randomized Ooh. number generator. Yes. Yep. Cool. Got it right here. Okay. So she's gonna hit the button, and we'll get our first number. What's it's from one to what? Uh, the third. One oh, to wait. I can only drum roll so long, guys. One you to gotta 20. enter it. One we're to twenty. Not okay. One to like, twenty. No, we're not, not. Look, just the if they tag three people. Yes. So yes. you have one to twenty. Yes. Okay. Good. All right. So it's one to twenty, Savannah, and uh, hit go. I got 16. 16. 16. Okay. What's the screen name on that? It is Gary. Gary Wee. Gary. Are you doing this from memory? You've memorized all of the names? (laughs) Well... That's yeah, just what that's it what says, Gary Wee. Yeah, it does. It okay, does say Gary, Gary Wee. So you'll be hearing from uh, Shannon. She'll be sending you a message. And uh, let's—I'm feeling generous today. Let's do a second. Let's do a second shirt giveaway. What do you say? Oh. Let's do oh. two shirts right oh. off our backs. Oh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, Savannah. One to twenty again. Naked. Let's hit that. Hit that number. Yep. 
All right, I got 19. 19. Oh, that was fast. Okay, let's go. It's, it's a random <laughs> number generator. It's just a button. Yeah. Just press a button. What do you think? Like it has to pull a. It's not the lottery. I don't know how Okay, uh, so Savannah, who we have on number 19? Uh, we have Goalie Go Lightly. Goalie Go Lightly, our friend, oh, yeah. recently joined our our, uh, our patrons. So oh, that's and terrific. she said, "Y'all gotta listen to this podcast." Yeah, our, uh, Goalie Go Lightly from Colorado, as I as I recall. I also oh. wanted yeah. to add that um, she was one of the few people who did. Uh, um, she voted for uh, Fergus. When God we did damn it! Day. Are we going back to this? That up. Okay. She was Team oh, Fergus. <laughs> All right, let's. Uh, I'm gonna gong this this uh, meeting of confessors. So you'll you'll both be hearing from uh, Shannon with your to get your your deets and uh, we'll round of applause. Send out your t-shirts. Yes, applause. Yay! For, Yay! But, but for everyone who com- who decided to to compete, yeah. Yeah. So yes, you have to. We'll continue to do really those contests and, and find us on. Right. Thank you guys. Okay. Uh, cool. I hereby adjourn. And declare closed this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Yeah, just for those of you at home, the Olivia's added punching motions to the. I did. I don't know. I really like ritual. felt the passion. I feel it. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we had. Uh, let's go through here. All of our voices here. We had a, a large cast of characters today. Abby <laughs> Cook was joining us for the first time, doing the voice of Eliza White. Uh, this was her first episode with us. We had Sean Priest, who's it's been a little while. He was back with us, I think, when we did something in Africa. And Sean Priest uh, is back doing a few voices He's for us today. He's been in Africa ever He's been, yes. He's back. Uh, <laughs> probably, he was there. doing John <laughs> King, uh, I think uh, Dr. Beard as well. We had... Who else was in this Ray. episode? We had oh, of course, Ray Candela uh, is going to be the voice of Helena Blavatsky throughout our series, uh, oh. as well as um, Morgan Jung uh, playing Henry Olcott. He played Henry Olcott the first time, oh, yeah, uh, and he's he'll be doing Henry Olcott for a few episodes for us as we go mm-hmm. through this, uh, this series this time around. And Sam Steen, who joined us uh, as our historical. Briefer. I <laughs> uh, was also doing uh, the voice of Robert Dale Owen for us today. And Nick Ross will, is playing our medium, uh, Mr. Coons. Okay, so uh, joining us in the discussion circle, we had Lucy Bond, our neophyte. Woo! Hooray. Jacob Wheatley, Knight of the Dangling Serpent. Farewell, mateys. Cool. Uh, Savannah Verrett, sister of the 84th degree. Goodbye, everybody. And Olivia Literal, Grand Master of the Order. I don't know why I'm wearing this pirate hat still. My name's Rob. I am the Supreme Hierophant. Coming up next on Occult Confessions, we will be bringing you the story of Helena Blavatsky's War with the Society for Psychical Research in India. Oh, hell yeah. We'll see you next time on Occult Confessions. Bye. Hell yeah. See ya. Bye.